Hello, and welcome to the Jewish Currents podcast on the nose. My name is Joshua Leifer, and I'm a contributing editor at Jewish Currents, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Our topic for this episode is the recent crackdown by German state officials, media outlets, and civil society groups on Palestinian speech, activism, and identity in Germany. This is a story that, for our purposes, starts in 2019, when the Bundestag, the German federal parliament, passed a non-binding resolution declaring the global boycott divestment sanctions movement, known as BDS, to be anti-Semitic. While the resolution carried no practicable or punitive measures, it has been used to legitimate the repression of any Palestinian in Germany who dares to speak about Palestine and Israel's occupation. Palestinian German journalists have been fired from major news outlets and denied jobs. Last May, the Berlin police banned several protests to mark Nakba Day, which commemorates the expulsion of an estimated 750,000 Palestinians at the hands of Zionist militias in 1948. In this episode, I talk with two fantastic guests. Hebe Jamal is a Palestinian-American journalist and an advocate currently based in Germany, and Nadia Simur is a German-Palestinian lawyer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I wanted to ask if either of you would want to give a quick introduction to the Palestinian community in Germany to try to give our listeners a sense of how many people roughly are part of it and what the political and communal organizations that are active in the community are like and what they do. Right. So this is a very difficult question because in Germany, I think there's something you have to consider is that they don't consider Palestinians as an actual people. They consider them stateless. So if you come to Germany as a refugee, you are literally categorized as a stateless person. So in fact, we don't know how many Palestinians are in fact in Germany. There are numbers from you know, 10,000, 15,000 to even 80,000 was the most recent number I've seen, but those numbers are actually skewed. So there are many Palestinians that migrated to Germany. Some came in the 60s to study, but a lot also came in the 80s as refugees stemming from the civil war in Lebanon. And when they did come to Germany, Germany initially did not even want them. They wanted to deport them back. There was even reports of individuals knowing that they are going to be deported. So you had Palestinians having suitcases in their homes packed in the corner of their rooms, waiting for that phone call from German authorities to say, okay, now you have to leave. The problem is Lebanon also did not want them back. So you had so many Palestinians in Berlin, specifically in the Newcomb area in Berlin, in the middle of being deported, but not having anywhere to go. So Germany essentially gave them toleration status, right? Saying that we'll just tolerate you being here for the time being. And the reason also why this number is so skewed is that you have people within this original kind of census of of Palestinians living in Germany. You have people like Kurds and and, and other refugees that specifically said, oh, we're Palestinians because they realized they'll just get toleration status. So even this number, the 80,000, is just so also misrepresented and needs a lot of research. The reason why We don't have that research, however, is because Germany is not willing to see them as a people. I'm kind of curious as a follow-up, like how does this lack of formal status and and sort of unrecognized quality affect Palestinians' ability to organize, to seek redress for things that happen? Is it the case that there are, you know, broader like charities or communal organizations that kind of function under different names. Do you have a sense of like how things work there? Yeah, um, you could definitely look at this question 
from the point of view of the newly arrived Palestinians, especially these days, Palestinians from Syria are arriving to Germany and they have a different status, much more like quote unquote stable refugee status because they are recognized as refugees, not as Palestinian refugees, but as refugees from Syria. And so those people, but also the people that came before and the few people that managed to, quote unquote, integrate, they were able to establish themselves and open up community centers to, for instance, learn and teach the German language. Like this is key, of course, like the language skills, but also community organizations, like small ones, you know, but state-funded ones, so not independent ones, state-funded community organizations serving this integration discourse, which I would call a form of containing or a form of controlling the communities to not give space to politicize the community or to, you know, develop political demands, but rather learning the, the German language or dealing with, you know, poverty, as Hiba was mentioning, like a lot of people who came from uh, Lebanon during the civil war, they have toleration status, they don't have work permissions, they are stuck in poverty. And these community organizations, they kind of manage that poverty, you know, when you have problems with the job center or problems with the immigration authority, that's what they address. But recently, I think like the younger, more political organizations, those of what I would call the second and third generation Palestinians who have more self-confidence than their parents, who, you know, were really like precarious in their status here. And I think this is this is also worth looking at. Some of them have a more liberal stance, like adapting human rights discourse. Some of them are more radical stance. So there's something happening. There's something developing from a political point of view, but still quite precarious. Also, of course, because of the repression that is happening. Sorry, just to add on, a lot of that confusion with identity, it really boils down also to post 9-11 and the criminalization of the Muslim identity in particular. And in Germany, really the Palestinian body and the Muslim body has kind of converged into one, right? And and post 9-11, you have this criminalization of Palestinians in particular, right? During the Soviet Union and, you know, East and West Berlin, Palestinians were this like terrorist leftists, but they've then emerged to become terrorist Muslims, right? So essentially, this kind of tabuization of the Palestinian experience that kind of Nadia specifically touched upon, where the younger generation is a little bit more confident, where the older generation is more you know, concerned about their livelihood, is also because of this crackdown. I personally know Palestinians that were here since the 60s that were very vocal, right? They were vocal on Janine, they were vocal in the 80s and 90s. And after 9-11, it became very, very difficult to organize and very, very difficult to convene and to strategize and to actually have a political voice. These communities are still being criminalized. You have the criminalization of protests literally just last year where they just banned Nekba Day demonstrations in Berlin. So this phenomenon is, is very much still impacting the Palestinian identity, which is why you might see the younger generation as you know, more confident, whereas the older generation is a little bit more conservative in trying to express that identity. I think that's a that's a great segue into into my next question, which was about the criminalization and, and some of what we've seen, you know, here in the US, 
the stories that have tended to cross over into U.S. media have generally focused on the way this has played out in German media. So there was, for instance, the firing of the Palestinian journalist at Deutsche Welle, a German news outlet, and then there was also the firing of Nemi Hassan. And then there were also, as Heva, you mentioned, crackdowns on protests, protests on Nakba Day, protests marking the death of Sherina Abu For people maybe who have seen the headlines but don't know the story behind all of this, like what is going on in Germany? Why is this happening in the way that it's happening? And also, why is this happening now? You know, in 2019, there was this infamous BDS notion of the German Bundestag saying that the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign is an anti-Semitic campaign and therefore it should not be supported by public or state institutions. Now, this is not a binding motion and yet it has been dealt with as if this means that BDS is banned in Germany. It's, it's, of course, it's not banned. It's not legally banned, but it gives the impression, you know, it gives like this chilling effect. And I, I believe that this BDS motion was a crucial moment in systematizing the legal backlash against Palestinians and those who are in solidarity with Palestine in Germany. But it was not, of course, the first one or the only event or the first event even. Just two years earlier, in 2017, the IHRA definition was adopted by the German Bundestag as well and then by the German government. And it has been handed down to German state institutions to be used as the one and only definition of anti-Semitism. Of course, this is also not binding but yet it's portrayed as if it's binding and it has created like this he- this one hegemonic understanding of the definition of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So I think this has helped to systematize the backlash and the repression against Palestinians. And ever since we see all these cases of banning on political activities of, for example, Rasmia Odeh. Um, she was here three years ago. She was supposed to, to give a speech on the occasion of the 8th of March, the International Women's Day, she was banned from doing so. Then later on, there was another Palestinian journalist who was banned to speak on political issues. Like This is a very severe violation of fundamental rights. This is something that even the German institutions, they understand they cannot do this on an everyday basis. And yet they have done this because, you know, the kind of atmosphere that has been created by the BDS motion and by also other bans it has helped the state institutions to to do that and to do that, uh, quote unquote, legitimately. Before that, before the adoption of the IHRA definition, before the BDS motion in the Bundestag, I think what we were dealing mostly with is a very fierce and defamatory media campaign, a slandering campaign, basically, against Palestinian activists and those who are in solidarity with Palestine, mainly by the outlets of the uh, Springer Publishing House, one of the worst disinforming tabloids in Germany. And they were basically adopting this discourse that state institutions and politicians easily could pick up, basically equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism and also using Israel and Palestine as a projection screen to carry out debates on racism and law and order, national security 
anti-terror, but also like restriction on migration and generally just what I would describe as Germany's substitute nationalism towards Israel, you know, placing themselves in the shoes of, of Israeli policymakers. And so it is a concentrated campaign in those media outlets that then served basically as the basis, as the fundament for, for then these uh, policies to be, to be based on and to be adopted. I just want to put in two background things for our listeners who maybe don't know. One is that the Springer Press, which owns, as Nadia mentioned, some of the most well-read or most read tablets in Germany, also recently bought Politico in the United States, the, the news giant. And that gave American audiences a glimpse into the right-wing ideology of the organization, which makes its journalists sign kind of ideological commitments, which include a commitment to the integrity of NATO, basically, the free market. And then one of them is Israel and Zionism, which also, of course, has a political corollary in that German politicians treat Israel's security as a central reason of state, I guess would be the translation. And so as German mainstream politicians understand it, part of the pursuit of Germans' interests or Germany's geopolitical interests is the defense of Israel. You know, bringing up Springer is, is a, Axel Springer is a very important point, but also taking into consideration that it really isn't just the right wing media. I mean, just last year you had Deutsche Welle, one of the biggest, you know, publicly owned German broadcasting uh, news media, which essentially fired seven Arab and mostly Palestinian journalists just because they decided to post their own opinions on their social media or express some support for Palestine in various different ways. I mean, one of the justifications was posting a map of Palestine on their social media as a photo. That was one of the findings of this specific investigation. And this kind of is, is, a, is a very common trend that happens in Germany. You have a small reporter that's kind of unknown, right, that kind of sees that Palestine Palestinians or Arabs are involved in some sort of major news media or major art institution like, you know, Documenta 15. And essentially what you have is them going on their little blogs or writing to their own publications saying um, so-and-so is Palestinian. They've expressed support for Palestine. They go against the IRA definition. They're anti-Semitic by German definition, German standards. And then these big institutions like Deutsche Welle, like those at Documenta, taking these kind of absurd claims and so terrified of being accused of anti-Semitism. And in essence, they kind of put their Arab or Palestinian workers under the rug. That's kind of the, the trend that we've seen. And specifically the Deutsche Welle firings, what was so interesting about that case in particular, they brought a self-proclaimed Arab Israeli by the name of Ahmed Mansour, who is a known Islamophobe. I mean, I believe uh, George Washington University specifically announced that this man is an Islamophobe, that we should be wary of his work. And Deutsche Welle brought him to do the investigation, specifically, you know, investigating Deutsche Welle workers. And lo and behold, these people are now anti-Semitic and deserve to be fired. And then again, you had the crackdown on protests, like you mentioned, during the Nakba Day demonstrations last year. You had Berlin State specifically say that Nakba Day demonstrations are banned. And they literally targeted the German version of Jewish Voice for Peace, like Jewish activists, from not 
doing a vigil for Shirin Abu Akhla, the, the Palestinian journalist who was killed in cold blood and caught on camera for the world to see. And this is the extent of Germany, the so-called democratic state. They are unwilling to be self-critical in the slightest because of their history, because of them trying to move on from the Holocaust. And in order for them to move on from the Holocaust, they have to, to redefine what their democracy means, right? And, and within that democracy, Palestinians are not allowed a freedom of expression and the ability to exist within their society. Let me just mention, for example, the Nakba demonstration ban, the commemoration of the Nakba on the 15th of May. This has been banned in Berlin last year. And not only this demonstration has been banned, but all other demonstrations starting from the 29th of April to basically the 15th, like there was a time frame where no no demonstrations on Palestine, which is a very vague way of expressing it, were allowed in Berlin. And whoever partakes in that demonstration or in attempting to demonstrate faces uh, criminal charges. The notice itself, the way it has been formulated is very telling. So first of all, it's, it's really an unprecedented violation of fundamental constitutional rights, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, all of that apparently does not apply to the Palestinians. But especially worrying is all these defamatory news reports that we just talked about, like Springer Presse, but also, as Hiba has mentioned, beyond that, like liberal newspapers, all of them, it's a hegemonic discourse. They were quoted in that ban notice to prove that demonstrations related to Palestine are violent and they escalate regularly. And, you know, there were a couple of incidents where police was attacked or as I, as a lawyer, as a defense lawyer would say, people were defending themselves against police attacks, you know. But of course, we know how this is portrayed. So, of course, there were these incidents. And there were also incidents where journalists were asked to get away because people know these journalists and know what kind of reports they will produce afterwards. So that these incidents, this happened, you know, and then they are being taken and generalized and portrayed as if the entire demonstration was a violent one and, and uh, basically uh, an uncivilized barbarian, like mass of people taking down the entire city of Berlin. The police ban took these reports as reference to say that in the past this happened and therefore we expect this to happen again, and therefore you are not allowed to demonstrate. Plus, this is an actual quote from the ban. Arabs and Turks are known to be very emotional. Basically, they say this kind of emotional state leads them to become very aggressive, and therefore they pose a danger to the public order. Now, not only is this a very like racist idea of you know the uncivilized Arabs and Turks, but also most interesting is that the way the ban notice is being formulated, you have one paragraph where it says what's going on in Israel-Palestine. So they give like a German narrative on what is happening there, namely that Israel has to suppress terrorist attacks and so on. And then in the next paragraph, talk about how Germany has to suppress anti-Semitism here, which in my eyes purports the idea that Israel and Germany are fighting the same fight here and there, against the same enemy. So I believe that this is yet another idea of what I call, you know, Azad's nationalism or substitute nationalism, putting Germany into Israel's shoes, if you want to say it like that. Nadia, you are a lawyer and you work on cases that are 
related to this. I was wondering if you could talk about what that's like. I imagine it's it's certainly not easy. It is a, it is really not easy because there's just there's so many cases and they are piling up and there are not a lot of lawyers who are willing to take these cases, especially because of what Hiba has mentioned, being just somewhere near a Palestinian case related to the Palestinian struggle, you know, turns you into a persona non grata, you know, what has happened to the Deutsche Welle being afraid of the accusation of anti-Semitism goes for individuals as well, you know. So unfortunately, back to the ban, it was challenged, of course, in the interlocutory proceedings, and we lost these cases. Of course, we're now continuing to fight this ban uh, in, you know, perhaps one day the constitutional court will say that we were right. But this, of course, takes time and also gives the authorities in the meantime, the time and the space to base their further actions against the Palestinians based on that. What was the reasoning, at, at least initially in this case? What, how did they justify sustaining the ban? Was it along the lines of what you said of basically public order? Exactly. So they said there is an escalation in Israel and Israel has to combat terrorism there. And these people that are supporting these kind of terrorist attacks over there are here. And in the past, they have been violent. In the past, they have been, you know, attacking the police and also attacking journalists and also uttering like racist and anti-Semitic slurs. And therefore, we expect this to happen in the future as well. While not differentiating that, as we were saying in the beginning, there is a huge Palestinian community in Berlin. There are several different organizations and different demonstrations, but they were all put in the, to the same box. And one incident that happened in that one demonstration was then also kind of like projected into the other demonstration. And also, and this is like legally an issue, violations by ordinary protesters, you know, if they committed anything, you know, like attacked a a police officer or something, then this incident was referred to the person who has registered the demonstration. So the person who has registered the demonstration suddenly became responsible for every single thing that has happened in that demonstration, which is a new legal reasoning. And we have seen this starting during the lockdown because of the COVID pandemic, where we accepted certain things because of the exceptional state of what was happening during the lockdowns. But now we see, you know, that state of exception is being normalized to suppress marginalized voices and dissenting voices. I mean, the crackdown isn't just, of course, in the streets and in the media. Have a, you've written a number of articles for 972 that illuminate the extent to which Palestinian identity is being essentially banned by German state institutions. In particular, there was one article that you wrote that that has stuck with me about German school curricula and the way that pro-Israel talking points, Zionist politics more generally, and the erasure of Palestinians has become almost an industry within Germany and part of the educational system. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that piece, which we'll link in the podcast show notes, about the process of writing it, also what you learned and kind of what you see the political implications of that are. I have to say, honestly, being a writer on such a niche issue on specifically anti-Palestinian racism in Germany, it's a very easy job, unfortunately. You don't need any sort of insider information to just show what is happening. It's all there. It's all 
public and, and they flaunt it publicly. I mean, how I came across this piece in particular, I had a number of students contact me of an anti-Palestinian racist incident that happened in their school of students who are specifically told that they can't say that they are Palestinian. I mean, that is is incredible to me. And so after multiple students got in contact with me, I realized that this is a you know entrenched issue. And what I did specifically was I, I did a Google search. I just did state school Israel. And the number of articles and the number of stuff that have come up is, is phenomenal. Each state even has their own like teaching guides on how to talk about Israel within the classroom. Just in January, after I had published this article, the Ministry of Education of the state of uh, Schleswig-Holstein published a guide that provides suggestions for secondary education teachers on how to tackle Israel-related anti-Semitism. So they had a literal brochure that not only reiterated Germany's commitment to Israel, specifically said the German state has a commitment to Israel, but they showed teachers how to counteract the BDS movement within the classroom. So in this guide that they handed out to teachers all across the state, you had, you know, a diagram that specifically stated that when Palestinians ask for the right of return, that is anti-Semitic because it's non-recognition of Israel's right to exist. This is exact quotes. I think you can find that every single education minister within Germany has had some sort of relationship with the Israel education minister there. And they cooperate on, on various issues. You have Israel Day in Germany. For students, you have exchange programs where they go to Israel and they learn about Israel, but you know, they don't go to the West Bank. They don't go to any Palestinian school. They don't really get taught about Gaza. They are not taught to talk about the Palestinian side. It is seen through this historical perspective and how Israel is this flourishing state of today, right? It, it isn't, you know, let's talk about uh, Palestinian repression. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about it. No, it's, 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 it's really one-sided. There has even been a change to German textbooks because they depicted some Israeli soldiers as hostile within some, edu- you know, secondary education textbooks. So you asked what I took from it afterwards. Honestly, it's it's mostly being distraught and how pervasive this issue is. And I think it's very different than other places like the United States where I have lived a majority of my life. And there is a lot of pro-Israel bias in the States. But in Germany, it's on a whole other level because it is entrenched in every single education institution. And in my opinion, what I got from it is that there's a crisis in civic education where you can't be critical of a country within a classroom is terrifying to me. And it shows the direction that this country is willing to take in order to protect their ally. It's very scary. And there isn't much research about it now either. I mean, you, we, we don't know the extent of this problem because once again, there are very little institutions that are willing to look into it because of this fear um, that they will be labeled anti-Semitic for questioning this commitment to Israel's security in the classroom. One of the striking things, I think, for an American to see is, I think one of you used the word hegemonic, is to see really how hegemonic this anti-Palestinian politics is in Germany, so much so that I, I was in Germany last summer for a conference that brought together Israeli, Jewish, anti-Zionist, and left anti-occupation activists and Palestinian advocates in Germany. And I remember asking a question to some of the Palestinian activists in Germany about who they thought was funding these initiatives, who they thought were sort of the other side. Because in America, we have this sense of, oh, we know that there's a really clear, like strong pro-Israel 
infrastructure, it's organizational, it's the American Jewish communal organizations, groups like APAC, like we know who they are. And I remember being very struck when one of the Palestinian German journalists said to me, like, people just do it themselves. Like that's how hegemonic it is. It's a kind of cultural self-policing that's happening. Now, obviously there also are state institutions. We know, for instance, that the Israeli foreign ministry lobbied very hard for the IHRA and that the American Jewish Committee, the AJC, has also been involved in Europe in trying to get countries to adopt the IHRA. But I think sort of what my next question for both of you is, is about, I guess, what people have called the German memory culture around the Holocaust and the place that Palestinians find themselves in. Because, you know, just to give a little bit of background for our listeners, part of the German myth about Germany's re-entry into the democratic world has been to place working through the past of the Holocaust at the center of the national identity. Now, this creates a kind of relational dynamic at which scholars like Saad Atchen have written about called the moral triangle. It puts Germans, Israelis, and Palestinians in relation to each other, but also not within positions of equality. So I'm kind of curious how you both understand the place of Palestinians, both within kind of like the memory culture of post-unification Germany, but also like this relational structure between Germans, Israelis, and, and Palestinians. Yeah, I mean, really Germans, specifically within various institutions, take it upon themselves to to, to combat any sort of Israel-related anti-Semitism. You know, when you ask that question, what immediately came to mind specifically was students within university, you know, student organization groups that restrict funding for Palestinian clubs. I mean, you have the student unions restricting clubs for Palestinian students. This isn't necessarily administrations. These are students themselves. And so when I, when I specifically think about memory culture in Germany, which is directly correlated to the Holocaust, I believe within the German mindset, it's this very linear, you know, logic, right? It's that we did something very bad. And in order to come back on the world stage, even in order to be kind of nationalistic again, to, to kind of be Germans again, we essentially have to find a way to mitigate what we did in the past. And what Germany has come to the conclusion of is is, is complete support for Israel, right? And, and Palestinians are this little annoying detail that they have to kind of figure out because in order to be unwavering within their support for Jewish people in Israel, they have to put Palestinians on the back burner. They have to disregard them. They have to do as much as they can to kind of get rid of this little annoyance so they could once again rebuild their image as a German state. So I don't want kind of anyone listening to this to have this assumption that Germany has dealt with their past because post-colonialism in Germany is very weak. The mindset of trying to come back and and deal with their, their colonial past, not just within what they did with the Holocaust, which they believe is just this rare occurrence, but it's also that they they have not dealt with their colonial crimes in Africa either. They think that it's different. It's it's something, it's a separate conversation. Whereas, you know, post-colonial scholars believe, no, it's, it's a very similar conversation. How we dealt with minorities during the 40s is how we dealt with them throughout history. And it's all connected, but to Germans and, and to a mainstream German society in particular, that's just not the case. This ho- The Holocaust was something separate. Anti-Semitism is not racism. And so it's, it's a very linear line of thinking and, and Palestinians are this um, disturbance within that line of thinking. I 100% agree with you, Heba. You know, Palestinians are like, 
a thorn in the side of Germany's memory culture. They're like this great nation that has come to terms with their past, but there are these unwelcome subjects that keep on interfering with this uh, magical image of being civilized members of the international community again, you know, because everything that happened like After 1945, there's like historical cesura, uh, you know, like these 12 years of fascism was like an exceptional nightmare. And we woke up from that. And now we are like this democratic rule of law, nation state in the European Union. I also think sometimes of this kind of dialectical relationship between looking at Palestinians as disposable but also as crucial at the same time, like crucial for the German identity, because this is where if you, if you really want to prove how civilized you are and how philosemitic or pro-Israel you are, you get the chance to prove that by throwing Palestinians under the bus. So this is it's also like this kind of performance that they act to show how civilized they are, to show what good allies they are. Yeah, and there's a quote that, that stuck out for me from this conference in Germany last summer by the Berlin-based scholar of Jewish and Islamic studies, Hannah Zuberi. She said, the birth of a morally improved German polity made of citizens who have learned their lesson and now wish to protect what their ancestors failed to protect goes along with an inscription of Palestinians as perpetrators and of Jews as their victims. And Nadia, I thought what you're saying is, is so true and super sharp that in reality, the German not working through of the past requires the constant projection of those crimes onto the Palestinians. And so Germans identify the Palestinians as the real anti-Semites and then don't have to work through what they haven't worked through, whether it's the truncated process of denazification in certain ways, or the colonial legacy of German violence in, in Africa and elsewhere. You know, evidence for not really working through the Holocaust, not working through their past, is that you have a Christian anti-Semitism commissioner. They call Jewish people anti-Semites for their political opinions on Israel. No, I think that's that's very sharp. And for Americans who don't know this, there is a there is a federal government commissioner, who's the commissioner for Jewish life in Germany and the fight against anti-Semitism, who is not himself Jewish, who is sort of the arbiter of what gets counted as anti-Semitic and what doesn't. So I think this is a great transition into sort of our last question, which is about the politics of solidarity and cooperation between these Israeli and Jewish anti-Zionists in Germany and Palestinian activists. One of the things that I was also struck by and have been struck by in my conversations with, with German activists is the way that the landscape looks a little bit different than it does in the United States, where there's a little bit more hesitancy and sometimes to, to work together between Israeli anti-Zionist and Palestinian organizations. In Germany, at least in certain parts of the activist ecosystem, there's less hesitancy there. I was wondering if, if both of you could spell out a little bit what that looks like and also kind of point our listeners to groups or initiatives that are doing important work that they should keep an eye on as these issues can, certainly won't go away. I think, especially in the last couple of years, the notion of solidarity and the notion of being together in this has grown. Anti-Zionist, Jewish former Israelis or other Jewish non-Israelis and Palestinians in Germany likewise feel alienated by this discourse. The ones for being 
something in between disposable and crucial, and the others for being instrumentalized, depending on, on the political position that is put forward. I think that this is a newer phenomenon because you have to understand the first generation Palestinians, they don't have that kind of political culture, let's say, or this kind of political experience because they came from places like Lebanon where it's impossible to meet an anti-Zionist Jew or an anti-Zionist Israeli. And coming here, you know, they were either busy with their status, with, you know, work permission, with with those kind of things, or coming, you know, with this kind of political culture where anti-Zionist Jews don't exist on the political landscape. But in the last couple of years, there are organizations like um, Palestine Speaks together with the Jewish Voice for Peace in Germany, along with uh, the Jewish Bund that have worked together, like organizing demonstrations, organizing talks, going to each other's events, supporting each other's like legal cases, you know, putting out statements together. And I, I, I think this is a very important step because this isn't merely like a performance in front of the white gaze in order to say, hey, look at us, we're, we're civilized, we love each other, well, there's, nothing, there's nothing between us. It's not, it's not a normalizing uh, action. It's more a really fierce uh, statement of resistance against Zionism as part of an imperialist and colonialist global policy. And I don't want to reduce it to a number, but people with common history, with common experience of oppression and resistance coming together and understanding that they need each other. Yeah, the political climate in Germany is evolving, and I really think it's evolving rather quickly, especially with the latest developments in, in Germany's continuous, relentless like effort to specifically you know, target Palestinians. I do think, though, I can't highlight enough how Germany's commitment to anti-Palestinian repression is really important in, in imagining how a political Palestinian people looks like in Germany. I know multiple people that have specifically told me that they really rather not put themselves out there and be involved in protests or, or be as political as they should be because they are afraid of their livelihood and, and being labeled anti-Semitic and, um, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, in my opinion, I do believe that some political actions might require anti-Zionist Jewish activists to kind of be on the forefront and other fights might require Palestinian activists to be on the forefront. But I do believe that in due time, it will get more apparent and, and more clear and with more groups popping up and being active. I mean, after the anti-BDS resolution, as, as Nadia pointed out, you had four or five pro-Palestinian groups pop up and be way more active than they were in recent years. And I do think that this will continue in the upcoming years. In 2020, during Israel's assault in Gaza, you had thousands of people on the street in Berlin. And I think the German populace um, is finally beginning to understand that the people that are in their country has a completely different political ideology that is starting to be more mainstream. I, I really do believe that. I just want to mention that there are so many other like non-Palestinian and non-Jewish groups who are in solidarity and who are really in the last couple of years have understood that if they want to fight against racism, they need to include the Palestinians. For example, there is the Queer Internationalist Pride in Berlin happening every year where Palestine is in the forefront. There is Migrantifa 
several organizations calling themselves Migrantifa that formed after the racist terrorist attack in Hanau three years ago that left nine persons of color dead, murdered in cold blood. There are other anti-racist, pro-refugee organizations. The conversation is happening there as well. And I, I really want to underline this because I, I want us to understand that Palestine is not like a single issue. You know, there's, let's call it a spectrum for liberation and Palestinian is part of this. And I'm really happy to see that there are so many organizations and, 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 and groups in Germany that have started to understand this and implement this and live this. I'm inclined to end it on that optimistic note, which is very rare on the Jewish Currents podcast. Nadia Heba, thank you so much for joining us on On the Nose. It's been a really great conversation. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners will learn a lot too. I can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 